tales of history and imagination. Today's tale opens on a wedding in the city of New Zion, formerly Munster, the jewel of Westphalia. The date, 3rd of April, 1534. The citizens gathered en masse to witness the joining together in holy matrimony of two lovers from the Netherlands. Like many people in New Zion at the time, the couple were recent arrivals and lack the familial ties one normally expects within a late medieval city. This couple, unnamed in the sources, were practically strangers to most of the wedding guests. But these are strange times, and I suppose for the citizens, one must find joy and companionship where one could. The host for the evening, a tavern keeper named Evard Reimenschneider, put on a sumptuous German meal Revelers were packed in around a long table, which sources claim was near overloaded with food, something which belied their true situation. If we take the eyewitness account of one Henry Gresbeck, nearly everyone there was having a blast, just eating, drinking, and making merry to their heart's desire. However, in the midst of the crowd, one citizen of New Zion, their prophet and leader, Jan Matthias, was far from happy. Now to digress for a minute. Our scene was once very much a Catholic city of 9,000 residents, served by a cathedral, 10 smaller churches, seven convents and four monasteries, an excessive amount by anyone's reckoning. They also had a number of Lutherans in the city, followers of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, and a growing and problematic number of Anabaptists. On 8th of February, 1534, the Anabaptists rebelled against their prince bishop, Franz von Waldeck. Word had spread across Europe largely thanks to their pastor, Bernard Rothman. Formerly a studious Catholic priest, Rothman had radicalized in the late 1520s. He had access to a printing press, which he used to publicize the revolution. Many Anabaptists safely arrived at Munster for our February and March. Now keeping on this digression, in Amsterdam on 10th of February, seven believers publicly stripped naked on a cold, wintry day. They ran through the streets preaching the naked truth. End times were coming, and Munster was the place where it would all go down. Thousands of Anabaptists across the Holy Roman Empire did similarly odd things. And this led to other city-states arresting their Anabaptists for fear of a wave of rebellions and sieges. So now we have their context. Back to Good Friday, 1534, and the wedding. As the crowd rowdily celebrated the couple's nuptials, the prophet, Jan Matthias, himself a new arrival, having been invited there by a student named Jan of Leiden, grew increasingly agitated. Now it might have been narcissistic rage, the carnivalesque atmosphere having taken the spotlight off of him. It probably wasn't the earthy nature of the celebration itself, which Anabaptism promoted in any case. Or he could have been upset by recent news 
that a militia of several thousand Anabaptists were arrested on their way to Munster. Whatever the case, he fumed throughout the night until, at the height of a revelry, he let out a soul-shuddering howl, gestured up to the heavens as if to say, why me, and then collapsed face down onto a table. The room fell silent. Everyone's eyes were on the prophet. Nobody dared approach him. Finally, the prophet arose, addressing God directly in his booming voice. Oh, dear father, my Lord and my God, I hear and I obey. Not what I want, but what you demand. He stood up, wished each and every guest a good night with a kiss on the lips, and then left the party. The following morning, the people of New Zion discovered God had ordered the prophet to don armour and engage the Prince Bishop's army in single combat. He was to ride out on Easter Sunday. To confuse matters somewhat, he'd go out with a retinue of a dozen bodyguards in tow. Now we'll come back to Jan Matthias's charge, but first we should explain in detail how we got there. Were I to nail my thesis to the door, I'd claim the theologian Martin Luther unintentionally started this whole ball rolling. Born in Eiselben in 1483, Luther rose to prominence in the Catholic Church as a priest, a writer and an academic. On 31st of October 1517, Luther, then a lecturer in moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, sent a letter to the Archbishop of Mainz. He called for a debate on the practice of churches granting indulgences to parishioners. At this point in their history, the church claimed when people died, their souls sat in purgatory for a time relative to their earthly sins. However, if you could afford to buy an indulgence, you could shorten your stay in the middle place. Now, if this money was used for good things, like social services for the poor, Luther may have been more comfortable with the practice. However, the church typically used this money for flashy, self-serving things. Case in point, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It had been upgraded more or less to the architectural marvel it is now, the year before Luther's letter. Indulgence money paid for all of that including that spectacular dome and the Pieta, a sculpture of the Virgin Mary cradling a dead Christ, carved by Michelangelo. Whether Luther really nailed his letter, his 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg's All Saints Church, or the document circulated by pamphlet, his challenge was revolutionary. When asked to go to Rome to explain himself, he refused. So by 1520, the church excommunicated him. Now Luther was hardly the first preacher to challenge the church's practices. In early 15th century Bohemia, Jan Hus preached against these indulgences until he was arrested, tried, and burned at the stake for doing so. In the 14th century, the Englishman John Wycliffe preached against the church, died of natural causes, then authorities exhumed his body and burned him at the stake, just to deter other heretics. But Luther was in a different time, benefiting from a more literate public with access to books, 
and a personal relationship to the Bible. A number of rulers were also sick of the church poking about in their business, so they were happy to protect radicals like Luther. Martin Luther's actions kicked off the Protestant Reformation, leading to many other thinkers challenging established religion in their own ways. One such group was the Anabaptists. Anabaptism was founded by a Swiss merchant named Conrad Grebel, who took to the heresy game after joining a Bible study class. He was convinced hundreds of years of priestly interference had changed our understanding of the Bible, and he wanted to take religion back to what he saw as its true roots. Two Anabaptist elements that enraged the establishment were his desire to stop churches hoarding wealth and the abolition of infant baptism. Grebel felt a baby cannot choose their own religion, so the practice was meaningless. He believed one should only be baptized in adulthood. Now this call to send the church to the poorhouse and to loosen their grip on future generations of followers made them no friends at all with Catholicism. Their belief that the world was due to end in just a few years, and that only they had the keys to heaven, added others, like the Lutherans, to their list of sworn enemies. Many of the early Anabaptist missionaries were relatively peaceful folk, like the Apostle of the North, Melchior Hoffman, who preached his eschatological message throughout Northern Europe in the 1520s. While in Holland, he converted a charismatic, larger-than-life baker named Jan Matthias to his cause. However, most of these early, apparently gentler preachers were arrested or executed for their heresy. In Hoffman's case, he was locked up in a Strasbourg dungeon in 1533, proclaiming the end times would start there in 1534. These arrests led to a new leadership emerging, with very similar beliefs, but enough mongrel in them to actually try and make these predictions happen. After Hoffman's Strasbourg incident, Anabaptist dogma had it that the world would come to an end in 1535, and ground zero would be Munster. And in all fairness of looking for a place to start a revolution from, Munster was a really decent choice. On the edges of the Holy Roman Empire, the city was well set up to withstand an attack from outsiders. Munster was ring-fenced by not one, but two defensive walls, and two moats, and it had ten heavy gates to enter and exit from, and the people seemed a good mix to ferment dangerous ideas as well. A border city with a large number of merchants, self-employed, well-off, and more individualistic than most. Munster was vulnerable to the words of populist reformers. And Catholicism, on the other hand, was the push factor. When established as a frontier city in the 9th century, Munster was a home base for the Catholic missionaries who converted Europe's remaining pagans. The mission well accomplished by this time, Munster were left with a greater share than usual of priests, monks, and nuns. Taxes more than indulgences paid for their many churches and lodgings. Yet the clergy themselves lived tax-free. The monks also potted away on church-owned farms, primarily to feed themselves, 
but any excess was sold at the markets the city farmers also sold at. The church took from the community, and they gave nothing tangible back in return. Now things really started to take form in Munster in 1532, largely due to a heretic preacher named Bernard Rothman. Rothman was a bright, promising kid who trained for the priesthood. By 1529, the clergy noticed Lutheran talking points creeping into his sermons. Thinking he just needed more training, his bosses sent him out with a bag of money to fund more Bible studies. Rothman took the money, travelled to Wittenberg, and studied Lutheranism with the best and brightest. By the early 1530s, Rothman was an Anabaptist. He returned to Munster in 1531, but vandalised the church on his return, and had to flee again for fear of being arrested. Thinking himself safe, he returned in 1532. Once back, he openly preached under the guise of a Lutheran minister. However, his sermons were extremely Anabaptist in nature. Prince Bishop von Waldeck was furious at the public lectures, and ordered the bailiffs to arrest Rothman. Unfortunately for von Waldeck, Munster had a city council with the authority to challenge him. The council blocked Rothman's arrest. Several radical Lutherans sat on the council. One councillor, a wool merchant named Bernard Nippedolling, was initially wary of Rothman, but he stood up for him as he detested the Prince Bishop. Nippedolling had been arrested by Waldeck's predecessor not long before Rothman's return. And my sources are unclear why, other than to say he was preparing to go to Lübeck on business, but was kidnapped. Nippedolling was jailed for six months and came out of the detention physically and psychologically damaged. Now Rothman had his protectors. He went into high gear, winning over the people of Munster. His message, which also included the abolition of private property, found its mark in thousands of struggling people living outside of Munster. Throughout 1533, a wave of his followers moved to Munster. When a city council election was held later that year, anybody on friendly terms with the Prince Bishop was replaced. And mind you, von Waldeck was doing very well on his own to alienate the people of Munster. He temporarily blockaded the city at one point, and argued incessantly with the city council. A lawyer had to be called in to mediate. At one point, the Prince Bishop insisted the council hire 300 mercenaries to keep the Catholics of Munster safe from harassment by Lutherans and Anabaptists. As 1533 wore on, the council hinted at what was coming, adopting an increasingly draconian approach in dealing with petty lawbreakers. In late 1533, an influx of Anabaptist preachers, including one former tailor's apprentice, hit the city. Of their population of around 9,000, 1,400 citizens were now Anabaptists. By the end of the year, a third of the city believed the apocalypse was near, in November, the co-mayor of the city, Jasper Jodfeld, called for the expulsion of Rothman and another Anabaptist preacher named Henry Roll. 
This escalated to a standoff, broken by an intervention from Dr. Friedrich von Wick, the lawyer called in earlier to mediate between the bishop and the council. The co-mayor accepted the presence of Rothman and Roll, so long as they stopped inciting rebellion from the pulpit. But of course, neither preacher stopped what they were doing. This caused the bishop to step in. He wrote to the council in January 1534, demanding they expel all the Anabaptists from the city. He called for an urgent meeting with the co-mayor and birded Nippodoling on February 2nd. Jodfeld and Nippodoling arrived with a thuggish giant named Tila Bussemeinster, known as the Cyclops, as he was missing an eye. Fearing for his safety, the bishop had the men turned away. The revolution proper started in the most ridiculous of ways. On 6th of February, 1534, Rothman marched to the nunnery and demanded all the nuns exit the building to be spoken to. He berated the nuns. The end times were coming if they weren't aware. They were, Rothman told them, an offence to God, cloistered away from the men of the city, when God had ordered people to go forth and multiply. Rothman ordered the nuns to leave the abbey, to find a man and to procreate. Most of the nuns did leave the convent. Many were terrified Rothman would return and do something awful to them. Also that day, Rothman made a prediction God would destroy the abbey on the stroke of midnight, 8th of February. In the morning, it was still standing, but the Anabaptists were finally ready to take matters into their own hands. One primary source, a teenager named Herman Kirstenbrook, wrote Bernard Nippodoling and the young tailor's apprentice from Leiden, Jan Bockelson, kicked off the revolution. They left Nippodoling's house hand in hand, chanting, Repent, repent, for the hour of the Lord is upon us all. As they marched towards the market square, many others dropped whatever they were doing at the time to join them. Kirstenbrook was shocked at how many people joined in, and just how many of them were otherwise respectable. As the crowd gathered apace, Rothman took the lead. Throughout the day, the noisy protest became a violent mob. Hundreds of Catholics, including council members, took refuge at the Overwater Church. The church had high defensive walls that provided some protection from the mob. On the 9th of February, the Anabaptists were setting up barricades in the streets and pointing cannons out in the general direction of the Prince Bishop. In the meantime, the councillors at Overwater Church got a messenger out of the city to warn Bishop von Waldeck of the coup. The bishop had little love for them since they backed the Anabaptists, but surely he'd still help them out. The bishop sent a message back he would indeed help them, but the messenger burned the message on the way back. When he returned, he claimed the bishop refused to help them. On 10th of February, wool merchant Bernard Nippodoling overplayed his hand, walking up to the Overwater Church alone to demand they repent. He was easily captured, but by day's end, another complication arose. With one of the city gates still open, hundreds of farmers flooded into the city. They were there to fight with the revolutionaries, 
but seemed incapable of discerning Anabaptist from Catholic. Worried the farmers would kill them all, the councillors sent Nipodoling back to the Anabaptist base to offer a temporary truce. The truce was agreed upon, but by day's end, the farmers had put down their scythes. They hit the city's taverns for a meal and a couple of beers before making their way home. Now this bizarre and eventful day was also the date Jan of Leiden wrote to Jan Matthias, inviting him to Munster. In the following days, Lutherans and Catholics alike escaped the city in droves. Anabaptists flooded in to take their place. Dr. Von Wick, the lawyer, also ran for the hills. Unfortunately for the doctor, Bishop Von Waldeck was furious with him. And having played intermediary, he had not backed him in earlier negotiations. Von Wick was beheaded as a traitor. While the Anabaptists prepared for war, the Prince Bishop started to gather his own army to defeat them. In the following days, the prophet Jan Matthias arrived at Munster. Dressed all in black, impossibly tall and slender, with a large bald head, a beard that reached his waist, and dark piercing eyes, he cut a striking figure. Wherever he went, Matthias was accompanied by his raven-haired wife, Devara. A former nun, she was said to be strikingly beautiful, 20 years younger than Jan, and counterpoised his dark, brooding countenance by always dressing in white. The prophet was well known in the empire, having baptized thousands of Anabaptists, and he was a vocal advocate for violent resistance. Within days of his arrival, Jan Matthias insisted all unbelievers in the city council be removed from their post. Bernard Nippodoling was appointed co-mayor, alongside another man named Gerd Kibbenbrock. Under his direction, the churches were vandalized, and a book burning took place in the market square. The prophet's sermons, all full of fire and brimstone, were enough for the astute Catholics to get out of town immediately. Within days of his arrival, Jan Matthias insisted everyone at New Zion must convert to Anabaptism. Catholics and Lutherans would no longer be tolerated. Some Catholics and Lutherans refused to convert, and they flat out refused to leave their homes. From the pulpit, Matthias called them dogs and sorcerers, and whores and killers, and the godless, and all who love lies and commit them. The prophet then called for all non-Anabaptists to be killed. Co-Mayor Nippodoling took Matthias down, stating such a genocide would lead to every prince and duke in the Holy Roman Empire invading them all at once. Jan Matthias eventually relented, to a degree. All the unbelievers would be stripped of their valuables they would then be thrown out of the city. On February 27, 1534, the Catholics and Lutherans of Munster were forcibly exiled. Then, on the morning of February 28, 1534, the residents of New Zion, formerly Munster, awoke to find hundreds of labourers outside the gates, building earthen barriers around the city. Beyond them, the first of the Prince Bishop's soldiers were setting up base. Prince Bishop Franz von Waldeck had been slow off the blocks, 
only meeting with his generals on February 23rd. However, he had a lot to cobble together in the background. He had no artillery, so had to borrow 42 cannons from neighbouring principalities. This included two famous big guns, nicknamed the Devil and the Devil's Mother. The city's worth of supplies were cobbled together, and finally he needed an actual army. By the middle of the year, the Prince Bishop had 8,000 mercenaries stationed outside the walls. A significant portion of those mercenaries had actually been hired by the Anabaptists, but had been stopped trying to get to the city. The Prince Bishop gave him a clear choice. Spend the siege locked in a dungeon or come work for him instead. And they took the latter option. The men were stationed in seven campgrounds, just outside of the range of the Anabaptist cannons. The Bishop was paying for the army from his own pocket, by loans taken out in several other principalities. To help pay for the siege, the Catholic churches in the region were hit with a 10% tax for the first time in memory. They were ordered to hand over their gold and jewellery as well. Now with this massive force, for now the Prince Bishop sat tight, hoping the very presence would spook the Anabaptists into quitting. Back to the prophet, Jan Matthias. On April 5th, 1534, Matthias donned armour, grabbed a lance and sword, and rode towards the enemy. He was escorted by a dozen bodyguards. As the men sidled towards Miller's Hill, 500 knights swooped down on them at speed and cut the men to shreds. The prophet's decapitated head was placed on the end of a long pole and then paraded before the city. That night, his genitals were cut off and then nailed to a gate. The Anabaptists were in a state of shock. As biblical literalists, many believed Jan Matthias would miraculously defeat the Prince Bishop. Some vainly held on to the hope Matthias was a second Christ who would rise up from the dead. That he was now in a dozen pieces notwithstanding. From his arrival, Jan Matthias had become the dominant figure in the revolution. Bernard Rothman had taken the back seat. Co-mayor Bernard Nippardolling was in awe of the man. In spite of their leadership having launched a revolution, they lacked the charisma to follow the prophet. The revolution was rudderless and at a real risk of falling over unless a new, charismatic leader stepped up to the plate. That night at sunset, a cannon of horns called the people of New Zion to the cathedral. As they filed in, a white-robed figure looked down from the third-floor balcony. Backlit by candlelight, he surveyed his kingdom. Amidst the chatter, he held on to his silence until it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. We don't know his exact words to the crowd that night, but the author, Anthony Arthur, ventures the following. Dear brothers and sisters, you should not allow yourselves to be distressed. It is God's will that Jan Matthias died. His time had come. From here, the man in white explained the prophet had become vain and proud, and so deserved to die. God had told him to go out alone, and he doomed himself by dragging those other men to their deaths. Back to the man in white. The terrible end of Jan Matthias was revealed to me eight days ago by the Holy Ghost. 
I lay sleeping after meditating on the divine law in the house of this man, Bernard Nippenolling. In my dream, Jan Matthias appeared before me, pierced by the spear of an armored knight. Well, something like this was said. In his dream, the man with the spear addressed him, stating, Do not fear me, for you are the well-beloved son of the father. Stay true to your calling. The judgment of God must fall upon Jan Matthias. When he is dead, you must marry his widow. Or in other words, the man in white, the former tailor's apprentice, Jan from Leiden, was stepping up to the plate. The prophet king had sinned, and he had died for his sins. The prophet king is dead. Long live the tailor king. We'll conclude this tale in a fortnight. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.